You are listening to the Tilted Lawyer Podcast, a show that inspires the legally challenged to enter the courtroom armed with a plan. I am Omar Serrato, owner of the Eagle Law Firm, experienced litigator, and the man you want to talk to before your big case. My co-host is Ileana Clone Rosa, owner of Clone Rosa Law, and a rising star in Southern California. And welcome, everybody, to episode 14 of the Tilted Lawyer Podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you in our new makeshift studio, also known as uh, the Eagle Law Firm uh, Conference Room, uh, previously used for multiple depositions, and today we're using it to record our show. This is an evolving studio. It's going to not always look like this. What you see right here is literally just a random amalgamation of my idea of what I thought a studio should look like. This lighting here, these lights, the the idea was that they're supposed to flicker like a flame, like the um, like like our logo, the the flaming voice of reason. I don't know our our logo, but we did the flame uh, effect, and Jocelyn said it doesn't really work. No. <laughs> it didn't look like a flame. Well, so now it's just orange. It could be any color, red. We purple. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also advised that I should get a, a ring light. Um, so maybe we'll do that next time. Who knows? Also, on the way, we're going to have multiple camera angles at some point. So we could get everybody on camera and we could switch between uh, speakers and that kind of stuff. But for right now, I got to say, I was just telling Melissa the other day about how this podcast has grown. And the very first episode that we had recorded never actually made it on YouTube (laughs) because the video was so bad. (laughs) We were literally recording a Zoom uh, session between the two of us, and then it cut us off at 30 minutes because we were using the free one. And so we had to log back in. (laughs) Um, And I don't even know what mics we were using, but we're using some kind of mics. The audio of that podcast is actually up. I haven't listened to it because I don't want to see how bad it is. (laughs) And um, the second one, I didn't talk for half of it because my audio cut off. Yeah, I I do remember that, your audio cutting off. Um, And just so you guys know, uh, we are now completely independent recording into the PC because Riverside has kicked us off. Um, which is the reason why I had us recording on three different sources. So this is our first completely independent recording, which I'm very proud to say. Um, it just so happens, when, usually when I take on things, I happen to have uh, Asperger's, which is the big joke that I always say <laughs> when, when the wife is like, hey, you're kind, of being a, you're kind of being an asshole right now. I was like, well, I have a condition. So I am excused. I have Asperger's, and I think you should be more sensitive to my needs. Sometimes it works. Oftentimes it doesn't. (laughs) At any rate, uh, here we are. Uh, We do have a wonderful show planned for you today. Um, We are going to talk a little bit about the Daryl Brooks case and his sovereign citizen defense, uh, which he is attempting to use to get him out of uh, the 60-plus Uh, felony counts, uh, including six counts of first-degree murder that he's facing in Wisconsin. Uh, He's been representing himself. They're into week three of trial. Today, the people just rested in that case, um, and Mr. Brooks had elected to wait until the presentation of his case to give opening statements. So the opening statements have been staggered. The prosecution has presented their opening statements, 
they presented all of the witnesses and they rested today. And when you do it that way, um, the way that Mr. Brooks has, he gets to open with his opening remarks at the beginning of his case. And that's what he's chosen to do. You typically as a, well, what do you think about that strategy? If you're sitting on a jury and you just get through the entire prosecution case and they spent three weeks presenting their case and now they're resting um, and you're feeling like it's all right over now this guy and now somebody wants to bring in an opening statement. How would you guys, how would you guys feel about that? I'm curious. What? Annoyed. <laughs> well, the reason why I even bring it up is because there is a very, it's, it's well-known trial strategy to not do that. You want to give your opening statement when they give their opening statement because first impressions matter. Mm -hmm. And the jury has had three weeks of uh, Mr. Brooks uh, being slammed with evidence showing that he ran over and murdered six people and injured dozens of others. Um, and evidence is coming. Gosh, he's, do he's doing so bad in this trial. <laughs> he needs an attorney in the worst way. Yes. And as an example... One of the things that you're not allowed to do in a criminal trial or any trial, rather, is um, you're not allowed to introduce evidence that is not relevant to the causes of action or to the, the charges. Um, and even if you do, it has to not be so prejudicial that it would color the jury's uh, vision of you um, and give them a tendency to... Um, rule against you despite whatever evidence might be. So one of the evidence, pieces of evidence that was ruled on in pretrial motions was they weren't going to bring up the fact that Mr. Brooks had been uh, charged and convicted. I, th I actually don't know if he was convicted or not, but he was definitely charged with domestic violence against his girlfriend. Um, they weren't going to bring in the fact that he was seen arguing with his girlfriend on the day that he took his car and ran it through that Christmas parade, killing so many others, because it was going to be viewed as, we don't need to do all of that. The issue is, did he drive this car recklessly into a crowd of people and kill people? That's the relevant uh, discussion. If we bring in evidence that he committed acts of domestic violence, it would, it would tend, the ruling was that it would tend to distract the jury and cause them to have a prejudicial view of Mr. Brooks, making it more difficult for him to get a fair trial. So they've took great care uh, to keep any instance or any piece of evidence or any piece of testimony that would go into whether or not he committed such acts. And Mr. Brooks, being a pro per, and um, representing himself and questioning these witnesses, opens the door to all of that talk, all of that discussion, to the point where, okay, well, obviously, everybody's going to know that you're uh, a, a woman batterer. And that the whole reason behind um, him driving into that crowd was because he got in an argument with his girlfriend. So if you guys are unfamiliar with the case, let me just paint the picture. It was December last year, 2021, in Wisconsin. They have a state county parade for Christmas where there's Christmas floats and Christmas music. And they had the dancing grannies and they had the local youth teams, sports teams, joining in on the parade. I was part of one when I was like 11. My little football team, we were marching with <laughs> everybody. And, um, you know, it was a local community event. But obviously they shut down the street and everybody's having a good time. Um, I don't remember if it was on Christmas Day or if it was on Christmas Eve. All I know is 
that's the setting. It's very festive. There's floats. There's Christmas music. Everybody's in a festive mood. And here comes Mr. Daryl Brooks driving a red SUV at high rates of speed. And if you've ever been to downtown L.A. during a sporting event, imagine all of these people in the streets um, and on the sidewalks and the streets are shut down. That's what he drove into. And he rams his car into dozens of people. And as a result of him doing that, killed six people in the process. The people that were murdered among them were uh, one member of the Dancing Grannies. I think she was 52 years old. Uh, There was a lot of elderly folks. Uh, The youngest victim was an eight-year-old boy who was there uh, as part of his baseball team, and uh, he was murdered by this man. After uh, the accident, he fled the scene, uh, left his car, and started running through random neighborhoods to hide. And uh, he made communication with several um, residences, people that lived in those residences, and they've testified in this trial. But yeah, you were obviously the guy in the car. You're the guy that I talked to. And um, he was hiding. Um, They actually, when they arrested him, he was hiding in a backyard playhouse for children, like a dollhouse or a treehouse. He was hiding in there, and that's how he was found, and then he was arrested and brought in for questioning, and that's the story of the Waukesha um, killings. That's what this trial is all about. So for a solid nine months, they've been litigating this case. They began the trial about three weeks ago, and... He made the decision to represent himself. We talked about this a little bit last week. Um, He had the public defender assisting him, and I can't even imagine what kind of nightmare that was like. Um, Ileana, what's the the most difficult client you've ever had to represent? I mean, obviously don't say names, but like (laughs) just a a hypothetical. Yes. I I, I think maybe three clients come to mind. And for different reasons, mm. I will say one of them, I think there were some mental issues that involved where mm. they needed help and they were just not getting it. And of course, it was damaging their case. Another one was maybe one that she was just too upset that she just wanted to say the opposite of everything that the other guy was saying, even if it was a benefit to her. Like, for example, opposing party agreed to attorney fees. Well, she said, no, I don't want the attorney fees to come from that account. I want them from this other account because he doesn't get to say uh, where from which account is coming. Well, the other account didn't have any money. So she ended up with no attorney fees. Wow. <laughs> And the other client, um, I don't know, he just didn't want to follow instructions completely. He didn't want to follow instructions? Oh, yeah, one of those. Yeah, yeah. No, like, it was, I don't know, they, they're the worst when they don't listen to you, and at the same time, they want you to help them, and it's like, they don't help mm. themselves they don't allow you to help them because they just think that they're doing better. Yeah. Or they just think that whatever the neighbor or the friend told them, it's a better strategy than what you're telling them. So. 
I'm gonna need you to try to lean into the microphone. Oh. <laughs> it was not picking you up very well. Um, yeah, I've had clients. Uh, well, the most difficult recent client, it was just one that was, uh, I don't know if a mental issues was the right um, characterization of her. I just think that she was going through a very emotional divorce. And uh, there was, <laughs> we were literally, we spent months crafting a global settlement. And she was prepared to blow it up because she wanted $15 a month for child support, not even spousal support, for child support. And despite the fact that they were already offering to pay above guideline support, and then it was just, it got to the point where it's like, I don't even know what to say anymore. I don't know what to say. You know, I'm, I'm like apologizing to the other attorneys, like, wow. Yeah, exactly. When it I can't force her. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, it's bad when you're apologizing to the other one. Because mm -hmm. it happened to me and that lady that she's like, but why? Like, we're offering to pay. Why are you not accepting? I'm like, well, the only thing that I can tell you is she wants it from this account and not the other one. That's it. And, well, there's nothing in that account. <laughs> and I explained to my client and, nope. Yeah. No, that's, man. I'll tell you what. We were able to salvage that judgment. And then after the fact, because we just put it on the record because we needed to get out of there. We were there all day. And then after the fact, she refused to sign it. <laughs> of course. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> and so she refused to sign the judgment. And, you know, notwithstanding that we had read it into the record and she was warned that this is going to be binding um, or enforceable. And at any rate, uh, the judge signed it without her signature. And um, I withdrew from the case. And I wished her a lot of luck. Um, it's an example of, uh, gosh, you got to be careful sometimes with uh, who you represent. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know? Um, that is true. And the thing is, I'm sure she had, I'm, I'm sure she was a good person and all, but sometimes um, when you're going through those kinds of things, it's, it's tough to be uh, level-headed in those scenarios. And it's funny because I would always have her in my office. And then we would talk, and she would be fine, and she would agree. Mm -hmm. As soon as she saw that guy, exactly. forget it. Yes. Forget it. That's she just exactly. turned into something else. No, I even had, I felt like I was dealing with a child in court because she was even making faces to the other party oh while we were God. on the hallway. <laughs> and I'm, like, trying to calm her down, trying to talk to her, and she's just, like, going around me doing faces I'm like what are you doing he's like he's doing faces to me I'm like no stop it <laughs> that was a horrible I mean I ended up of course not continuing with the case but it was a nightmare yeah it was a nightmare uh, there was an well I represented a couple of mentally legitimately mentally <laughs> ill folks before I think I told you about those one of them was in Riverside and it was a client that was accused of a sexual assault of young boys uh, that she was watching. And um, it was one of the saddest cases that I've ever had because, like, this dad, her father, this lady was probably, I want to say, in her 40s okay. at the time. And I was, I must have been 33-ish, 34 maybe, 35. But she was older, and her dad was the one that requested us to come and represent her. And so mm. um, I did. It was at the, that firm that you and I yeah. formerly worked <laughs> for, um, and so, of course, I was taking on all of those hearings and going to do all of the jail visits. Um, but her dad would come in to talk, and he would talk with me. He was probably in his 70s, 
approaching 80. He looked like he should just be like winding down in retirement somewhere, but he was just like heartbroken over this case and he wanted to get his daughter out because, you know, and it was one of these cases where they couldn't really proceed because of her competency issues. And then um, I would go to visit her at the jail. I was suspicious of this lady Mm -hmm. that she was not actually mentally ill. I felt like it was a show. Hmm. Yeah. Like we'd get into court and I would talk to her and she would have these lucid moments Okay. Where it's like I'm talking to somebody, but then she would like go into this uh, caricature of what she believed a schizophrenic person would be, you know, yes. and uh, she would perform that way for the court. Mm-hmm. And they, of course, accused her of malingering mm-hmm. uh, her mental illness. And inevitably, I don't know uh, w- what happened because the dad could not afford mm-hmm. representation yeah. going forward. Um, but in one of the jail visits during the day. So I was in Riverside Court. After my uh, court appearance in Riverside, I went to go visit her across the street. And um, she came out of her cell. I mean, you know, the holding, the jail visit, like the windows, like the the structure. I don't know what floor you go on, but you got to go upstairs and you're sitting in there. Um, And then she starts like, Uh, talking to me about, like, all of her sexual encounters in the jail, and then she started undressing herself. (laughs) And I I, I had to say, hey, guard. Oh, my God. (laughs) I think you might want to come get this one. (laughs) (laughs) That was the last time I ever saw her. It wasn't, you know, not because of that. I think it was just that was the end of representation. We couldn't really do much more for her. Um, but I remember that case. It was interesting. There was one psychological report that said that she was competent. There was another mm-hmm. one that said that she was vastly sick, and we needed a tiebreaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tiebreaker was inconclusive. And then it's like, oh. after all of that, now now what? Now what? Okay, yeah. let's get a fourth opinion. Mm-hmm. Why don't we just make it a fifth? Mm-hmm. And then the judge is like, I tried to give you guys an odd number, and they came back mm-hmm. with a tie anyway. So um, uh, I love that judge, though. That judge had a lot of patience. Um, she was the one judge at the time for that whole mm-hmm. uh, dealing with all of the mental health issues uh, in the criminal courts. So there was that client. Uh, there was another client that I had uh, that I told you about. It was the, the murder case uh, up in Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I told you about that case. I told them about the case for sure, about how he had uh, lured this young man who was in his 20s. I guess... There was some young girl that was staying with him and his girlfriend. The girl couldn't have been older than 18, 19 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they found her. I believe that she was homeless. And then she was taken in by this couple Mm -hmm. who practiced uh, satanic rituals and all kinds of stuff. Oh, yes. You mentioned something. Yeah. Yeah. And so they lured him in with the promise of, hey, you got to come over we're going to have a good time. We could have a threesome and we could do all of the stuff and we're gonna, it's going to be great. And then the guy's like, hell yeah. And so he, <laughs> he jumps in his car and he drives up the mountain to Paris. It's not at the mountains, is it? It's, it's near like a lake. Yeah. But he goes up into this rural looking area and upon uh, he parks and it's in this, the property was like maybe two acres large. Okay. It was like this house, a small house in this large swath of land. They had a fire pit in the middle. I guess you would call it the backyard. Okay. He walks into the house, um, and the guy that would have been my client and this other guy brutally murdered that man. Wow. 
There was blood on the ceilings. There was blood in the kitchen. There was blood in the living room. There was blood in the bedrooms. They pulverized um, his skull, brain matter all over the place. And then they attempted to discard the body by throwing it in the fire pit mm -hmm. and uh, cremating him, not understanding that that's not, no, that's not how, how works. cremation works. <laughs> So I went to visit this guy in jail. I don't remember where we were. I don't, it couldn't have been Rancho. It must have been. If it happened in Paris, then it was probably. Like out Marietta. in. Uh, yeah, out in Marietta. I think it must have been Marietta. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. where I did the jail visit with him. Mm -hmm. And he was telling me that I'm innocent and all of the stuff. And I said, okay, it's fine that you're telling me that. Mm -hmm. I just want you to know this is what the police have on you. Mm -hmm. And we talked about evidence. the evidence. And, um, well, they stole the guy's car and tried to sell it to a third party. <laughs> yeah, afterwards. Um, but they found the bone fragments uh, from the fire pit where they tried to incinerate mm -hmm. the body. They found all of the blood. They found all of the stuff. And they had arrested the girls, um, and they ratted him out. It's like, yeah, it was all his idea. Um, and then he's like, really? Like, <laughs> no way. Do they have all of that? Um he didn't admit to doing it, but, like, I just remember there being a look in his eyes. Some people would interpret it as the look of pure evil. Whether or not pure evil has a look, I don't know. Whether or not you're religious or not, I just know that when I looked in his eyes, in my head, I'm sure this must not have been it, but I, in my head, I'm picturing, like, black eyes the way that you would see in the movies. Yeah. But it's just big like a huge pupils, um, like almost pure black, mm -hmm. expressionless face. Like I'm not even talking to a human being. Mm -hmm. He's uh, something else from the nether world of uh, he Hades. Well, he was, um, yeah, he might have been. He might have yeah. been. Those are the three. Oh, that, I haven't gotten into the one that uh, gave his stepdaughter an STD and got her pregnant. Oh. I had a lot of bad clients in my career. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, two of those have been criminal. I mean, those were, I don't, you know, I don't do much of criminal and yeah. those were the worst. Yeah. So my, my stories are usually more of, I guess, drama and being upset and doing crazy stuff. Now that I remember, I had this domestic violence case where opposing party was, they were dueling restraining orders. Opposing party was hiding for service. Mm. So... Your client decided that she was gonna break in into one of onto his business so that the alarm could go off and he will be called by the company to come to the building to see what happened and that way she could have somebody serve him. Mm. I'm like, great. So you're breaking the law wow. <laughs> to try to serve. I don't know how that's gonna look. Did it work? Yeah. I'm curious actually. No, because he sent his mom. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, off the top of my head, I think that's probably good service. Yes. I think it still works, you know. It is still good service. Are you getting in trouble for breaking it? I don't know. That's yeah, yeah. Trespassing, yeah. <laughs> oh. That was crazy. Have you done one of the, one of these where you're at council table and the guy's avoiding service, but he shows up to the hearing and you say, hey, so this is yours. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's a, let the record reflect, Your Honor, that I have just served the defendant. And then you respondent. should know, you Oh, I just did. I believe I just did. <laughs> if you want to avoid service, why don't you tell the judge? Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's oh, I've I've had a I've actually done that with a with your attorneys 
Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, but they're, oh, I don't accept service behalf half of my client. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Your Honor, she's obviously shielding her client from, <laughs> you see what's happening. Mm-hmm. And, and then her client literally ran down the hall because mm-hmm. she thought I was going to serve her in the hall. It's like, this is, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> you are a grown woman. You were in your 40s. Are they, they going to attempt by avoiding it? Like, eventually you're going to get served or the court is going to find that yeah. service was attempted, whatever, and... It's going to go forward. But then I just make a record. It's like, Your Honor, I just want you to understand that I literally just try to serve client or or the other party right now, and you saw them actively evade service, Mm -hmm. you know? So whatever games they're trying to play, I'm asking for your permission to publish through publication since they're obviously aware of the proceedings. Mm -hmm. They're showing up to court, and they're playing these games with service. But these are the fun... Yeah, the criminal cases are the worst. (laughs) I still do criminal cases. Mm -hmm. I haven't stopped doing them. Just not as much. Mm -hmm. I don't do any of those crazy cases that I used to do. Um, but, you know, yeah, most of our cases are in the civil arena, uh, family law, uh, probate stuff. Yeah. Not nearly as much fun as the criminal cases. Hence, we're talking about this Daryl Brooks guy. Who, who you're asking. <laughs> I guess it does. Being um, criminals sometimes is, I was telling Melissa earlier, I don't know why I find criminals sometimes boring like the process itself like the law is interesting criminal court yes yeah but the process like going to court and having to wait and the da ignores you or there's no da yeah. and they take forever like i was in court um this week and judge decided to take all of the traffic matters first so i was there like for four <laughs> hours just sitting just to enter a plea and i don't know that bores me and i guess that's why i usually just do like the small pieces like special appearances yeah, criminal court is very, well, I, I think it's a mentality. Do you guys know about the Stanford Project? Mm, the Stanford Project. Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. I know you guys know about it. You yeah. have to. It was either in the 60s or the 70s mm-hmm. where they conducted an experiment, a psychological mm-hmm. experiment at Stanford University, yeah. whereby they were going to take these volunteers, mm-hmm. half of them are going to be labeled inmates, yes, and the other half are going to be labeled mm-hmm. correctional officers, okay. right? And they were going to put them in a fake jail and no rules. Okay. Let's just see what happens. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was the people that were in authority mm-hmm. started to take advantage of their authority. Mm-hmm. Yes. And started to treat them as if they were actually prisoners, even though this was mm-hmm. all pretend. And they started to, little by little, increase their advantage mm-hmm. over these prisoners to the point where they were literally torturing, ordering torturing or waterboarding of some of the inmates. Oh I want to say that I read that. There was actually a movie on it about Netflix not too long ago. Um, but, yeah, it got pretty freaking wild. And the inmates were literally as if they're imprisoned. Mm-hmm. And the people conducting the study was like, oh, no, let's just keep them, let them keep going. <laughs> you know? let's, see, let's see what happens. That's crazy. I guess what they found out from that study is human beings, it's in our nature to abuse power. Mm-hmm. And I forgot why I started even bringing it up. What were we talking about just prior to the Stanford project? Why did I even bring it up? Just the criminal, like the... the oh, yeah, yeah. So the, think about the dynamics of a mm-hmm. criminal courtroom. You have a judge. You have a DA that sits there all day long mm-hmm. for every single case. Mm-hmm. They're usually talking to uh, public defenders yeah. who are just as irritated with the clients as the mm-hmm. DAs. Oh, yes, I saw that in the hallway. <laughs> yeah, they have a, they have a certain rapport that they develop with the uh, district attorney. So they're they're developing this friendship mm-hmm. just by 
seen each other every day. They despise private attorneys. I know that firsthand because I used to, I was a, I didn't, what was I? I was an intern intern at the DA's office. Mm -hmm. And every time there was a private attorney, like there was this this air of just despisement, like I I hate this guy. Like, oh, and it's always like he's getting paid thousands of dollars for this. And I'm getting here, sitting here, paying my whatever, which is true. Deals. The DAs don't get paid anything. (laughs) I think they max out. Well, I don't know what it is now. But when I was at one time thinking of becoming a DA, I think the max salary was 120. I don't know if that's still the case or not. That was years ago. Um, But yeah, they don't (laughs) compare to private defense attorneys. It's true. They don't get paid very much. Not at all. And they get, they work a lot. Like of course they work a they lot. Get that max, but then yeah. they're in the office like all day, whole night. It's yeah, yeah. And um, so you have that dynamic going on, and then you have the prisoners that are in there every single mm-hmm. day. And you and I haven't both practiced mm-hmm. criminal law, where we were making those jail visits and mm-hmm. being immersed in that environment. It's not like family law where you get to sit and have a, a coffee mm-hmm. with your client and you know talk about at length about your case. It's not like that at all. Yeah. It's uh, it's a lot more. Um, well, you're talking to a guy that's in shackles, yeah, and you can't even a- sit next to yeah. Like when you go into like what? the one of the criminal courtrooms, no matter where it is, you always have to get permission from the bailiff. Mm-hmm. Could I go sit with my client, please? Or you got to go talk to them, and you're literally talking to them in this side room, mm-hmm. outside of the courtroom, behind glass or plexiglass. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're in, in shackles and an orange jumpsuit suit, and so impressions being everything, they're viewed as defendants, prisoners. Mm-hmm. And the reality of criminal law is most of the people are there because they actually did what they're accused of doing or something similar. There's not a whole lot of innocent folks in criminal court. That's been my experience. Yeah. The people that get charged with DUIs were really driving under the influence at the time of the <laughs> arrest. <laughs> Uh, the people that battered their spouse really did batter their spouse, and there's the bruises to prove it. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there's cases where they get dismissed. they're legitimately innocent, yeah. right? These are the ones that we take to trial, and, uh, you know, that's its own thing. But imagine that environment, and you're dealing with that every single day. Criminal court has a certain tenor to it mm-hmm. that civil court doesn't have. Yes. That family court doesn't have, that probate court doesn't have, that dependency court doesn't even have, despite the fact that most people are in there because they lost their parental rights in some capacity. And so they treat you a certain way as if you were less than. Yes. If you're a private attorney, you're not part of the club. Mm-hmm. You're making tons, you're, you're in all these thousands of dollars, so, you know, F you, you mm-hmm. know? You want your discovery, go get it downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> They'll literally say yes. stuff like that, you know? No, in that court, they make you, they don't want you to approach the DA. They make you sign a sheet when you go in. Mm-hmm. And they were supposed to go by the sheet. But what I have found is that depending on the DA, sometimes they don't follow that. And then yeah. you see other attorneys approaching, and I'm like, well, I'm on the list. You are not calling me. Like, <laughs> what do I do? And then yeah. I approach you, and they ask you about the list. Well, you're not really following the list. Like, you're just talking to whoever comes to you. Like, why are yeah. you? It just drives me crazy. Oh, I never got along with those DAs, especially in, I'm not going to name the courtroom, but, oh, I have a, a hate-hate relationship with some of those DAs <laughs> just because they try to treat you like that, yes, like they're they big-timing you, and, you know, they are disrespectful, mm-hmm. and, yes. like, you're bothering them to exactly. talk to them about mm-hmm. the case that you have, like, oh, yes. what do you want? <laughs> I want to talk about my client's case. What do you mean, what do I want? I stopped talking mm-hmm. to them because the arguments that we would get into, you know, it's yes. like... 
uh, they're, they're not listening to you at that point. So I, mm-hmm. I tend to uh, communicate with them through email okay. prior. Well, the ones that you can get an email if you can get an email address. <laughs> because because more often than not, it's like, well, it's not really my case. It's this other guy's. Oh, she just got transferred to Barstow. And so or it's going to go to another day. You get one of those, right? Or it's not a sign yet. And yeah. And I'm not saying this to disparage the DAs. I'm just saying there's good ones and there's bad mm-hmm. ones. I have a lot of friends that are, d- that are DAs, and they're really good DAs. Mm-hmm. But there are some DAs out there that really hate defense attorneys mm-hmm. or their job or both or the defendants, and I get it. I mean, they deal with a lot of uh, negativity. Um, well, I've encountered some good ones, and I think maybe two weeks ago I was in court, criminal court, and there was one that, I mean, she was really nice. Um, of course, she was doing her job, and I was doing my job, but it was very cordial. But the majority? Uh, yeah, it's 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 a... I mean, I get it. It's a tough job. It is. Yes. But I feel like I've been in their position before. I've literally been the law clerk mm-hmm. dealing with misdemeanors. Like, yeah, what do you got for me? You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then it's like, uh, oh, I want... And it's funny. They always... All the defense attorneys come in with, like, this big pitch. I know what my guy did. I know what yes. you guys have. I know it. <laughs> but just hear me out. It's like, okay, what do you got yes. for me? And so I've, I've been on that side of it. And, uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's annoying to uh, listen to all of that. And you gotta, you have to know too. It's like uh, the DAs, they spend all day in trial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They have all these criminal cases that they try. And then all of the defenses are basically the same that they hear. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the officer didn't do his investigation. They, were, they tried to set my guy up or this and that or chain of custody, whatever. They're always trying to fight up all of these loopholes. Mm-hmm. And that gets really annoying. I get it. It gets really annoying. And to the point where uh, there's this my favorite DA of all time. Um, I used to love this one. I used to go to her and we would obviously go. Mm-hmm. She'd literally tell me, look, I'm not going to prosecute your guy. I'm going to give him this is the offer. I'm going to dismiss the case. Why don't you go back and tell him how you were the big hero and got his case dismissed? <laughs> got it. Fist bumps. Boom. <laughs> you know? But she was cool like that. But then I've seen her with the other... Uh, other de- other defense attorneys, and she'd be like, look, why don't you just tell me all about how my officer did a, a shitty investigation, and then we'll go to trial, and you can show me how it was done. Mm-hmm. Done. Yeah. And then the guy's like, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know? He was, what there to say? What was there to say? He knows that he's coming with a frivolous argument. But what else does he have? No, and so, there's ways to go around it, I think, because it can be straightforward and maybe, like, prevent them from, like you said, just going with the same defenses, yeah. but not being, like, rude for no reason. Yeah. Like yeah. dismissing, like that's usually how, like just saying hi, it's like, what do you want? Like, yes. you can even say hi. <laughs> yes. It's, that's the part that bothers me and it's like so constant in that, um, I guess, arena, the criminal arena. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's some really uh, fun ones also. Interesting. It goes to uh, civility and decorum. Yes. I feel like as an attorney, Especially in family law and in civil litigation, when I'm meeting with another attorney, I go out of my way to be cordial with them, mm-hmm. to open up lines of uh, communication, yeah. settlement. Like, I just had a DV case the other day, and I just told um, the other attorneys, like, look, look, my client hasn't said anything. Mm-hmm. The only reason why there's a restraining order in the first place is because your guy did some crazy thing. Mm-hmm. If it's an isolated incident, just make sure he doesn't do it again. Mm-hmm. Chances are we might end up dismissing this thing if everybody just cools down. Yeah. It's like, all right, cool. 
nobody's ever approached me like that, you know? Mm-hmm. It's always like, oh, whatever, I'm the big attorney, and we're going to litigate and go to trial. It's like, okay, you want to puff out your chest? I guess you're going to, we're going to go to trial and litigate it, and you were the one. Just, and it's not even like, it's an ego thing with most attorneys. Mm-hmm. It oh, doesn't yes. have to be that way. <laughs> Take into doesn't. consideration, sometimes you are too nice. <laughs> oh. oh, I do, but, but, but... It helps them. But if they don't return the favor, how often have you seen me in my office? Oh, none. Uh, none. Going up against other counsel that wanted to uh, puff out the chest against mm-hmm. us, and we had to, you know, put our foot down on certain yeah. situations. Mm-hmm. And so, look, we could play that game. We could be we could we could be adversaries, mm-hmm. or we could work together. Exactly. And we're prepared for both. And however you want to proceed is how we'll proceed. I wanted to talk about Daryl Brooks. I'm so not used to this setup. I usually have a clock right in front of me. Just to see how long we've been going. <laughs> Apparently, we've been going for about a half hour. Uh, so the Daryl Brooks thing. Yeah. One of the things he keeps on, he keeps on bringing up is um, subject matter jurisdiction, right? Should take the bar. <laughs> yeah, and so they'll every time a witness would refer to him as Daryl Brooks, objection, Your Honor, I don't consent to be calling be called by that name. Anytime everything happened, Your Honor, you still haven't proven subject matter jurisdiction. <laughs> at, the, at, the, at the beginning of every, every hearing, at the conclusion, whenever they go to break, um, objection, subject jurisdiction has not been proven in this case. And they're just like, oh, I've noted your record many oh, times, over and over. So they're playing this game. He thinks that it's somebody told this guy mm-hmm. that if he declares himself a sovereign citizen, and sovereign literally means like you're a king, like you're not like you make rules. You don't follow rules. You're not subject. Uh, like it, it'd be the equivalent of uh, us uh, telling China that they're under arrest by the laws of the United States. And well, no, we're not because that's a sovereign country. So they just expanded it. I'm a sovereign citizen. I don't follow the rules of Wisconsin or of this courtroom, but I do uh, accept that I have these constitutional rights yes. that you must follow. All the benefits. Yeah. So every time. They bring up subject jurisdiction in a criminal case. Here's why it's a losing argument no matter when. If you were to go to Russia, either of you, girls or or whoever, if, if you guys were to go to Russia and murder somebody, what are the chances are that you're going to get out of that murder case by saying you're an American citizen, not subject to the laws of Russia? Bullshit, because you were in Russia at the time, yeah. and they have said that you have committed a, a, a crime against us and one of our citizens, and we're going to hold you to account, right? So There's that lady, that um, basketball player. I was just going to mention yeah. that, yeah. That Griner. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, she had a stash of weed. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The boy that took down the politics advertisements in North Korea, the American citizen. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, yeah, I forget that guy's name. But, yeah, for the same reason, we can't just go over there without declaring war yep. to break him out of jail. Yep. Exactly. You broke mm-hmm. their rules, you're, you're hey. One of his defense, or not his, but his attorney was that he was an American citizen, mm-hmm. and North Korea was like, I'm you sorry, but it yeah. happened here. <laughs> he That's it. Come here. And yeah. this is a crime. So the courts, the federal government, the Constitution of the United States, has given the states plenary power to uh, assert jurisdiction over criminal acts committed within their four walls, meaning their borders. And so if you commit a crime in Wisconsin, you got to go to court in Wisconsin. You don't get to have the court heard in California. 
And they don't have to prove subject matter jurisdiction. They just have to make a finding that it exists. And subject matter jurisdiction, do you remember the two, the two ways that you could get subject matter? Blah. Do you remember the two ways you get subject matter jurisdiction in a case? Yeah, well, and, and the location, so there's different in criminal from civil, right? Yeah. So in criminal, you commit the act over there, you're yeah. going to jail here, you know, and we're going to try you here. Mm-hmm. In civil court, there's two ways. Um, I remember what they are. Girls, you know what they are? No. No, we haven't passed the board yet. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, that's true. So you acquire subject matter jurisdiction if you were a resident of the place? Oh, yes. Or if the incident occurs, and then the, the big famous uh, bar question is what if you're like flying above in the airspace of oklahoma on your way from miami to california and what about then and i'm I'm not even going to try to answer that question i don't don't care i don't ptsd you know yeah the typical i think i don't know if it was the bar exam or if it was one of the practice questions but the guy that lives in TJ in Mex- Tijuana, Mexico, and then comes to San Diego for a festival. Something happens, and then he goes back. Oh, yeah. Well, I think there's actually a deal with we have with Mexico where they will um, extradite uh, that person back to the United States, yeah. Yeah. and um, he will face the consequences of violating United States law, mm-hmm. thinking he was going to be safe. There's no safe harbor nope. policy uh, for criminals between uh, on the border. I think they have it with Colombia, too. Same thing. Probably. I'm, I'm sure they do because we're, we're very much involved in all of their politics. Yeah. And we have been for many, many years for many reasons, illicit and not illicit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we are going to, at some point, discuss the OJ case. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to tease that segment uh, for probably the next show. Okay. But we're going to do a deep dive into the the O.J. Simpson case. And the reason why we're going to talk about it is because I had... um, By the way, I've been getting some feedback about the show. And um, girls, when you girls were involved, um, people really liked the Gypsy Rose segment because you guys brought that in. It was like, you know, something that you wanted to discuss and you guys were involved and shared your opinions. And so uh, we're going to keep that for... I think it worked out really well, but... One of the things that they brought up is they were really curious about O.J. Simpson and why he was guilty in the criminal, or or not guilty in the criminal and guilty in the civil, civil, and what happened with the money judgment and uh, the book and all this stuff and how all that works. And the way that all of that works is really 30 years of evolving law. Seriously. Um, I mean, some of it is is pretty well established for hundreds of years, but the way that he shielded his money is pretty... um, well, it's interesting. I think it's worth a listen. Yeah. yeah, but back in 1994, I don't think that you girls were born yet. I was. I was not. Yeah, Eliana, you would have been like nine or eight no. in 94. Yeah. I was 13. I was 13, and I remember that year well. I was a big Raiders fan that year, and they were supposed to be like this amazing team and go to the Super Bowl, and I remember they started out... Eight and two, and then they lost their last six games and finished eight and eight and missed the playoffs. And I learned never again to trust the sports prognosticators when it comes to football. Um, But OJ, at the time, was an employee of NBC Sports. He would commentate on football games. 
And when he would commentate, he would often be on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. Significant because one of the pieces of evidence, the gloves, Mm -hmm. he would wear every week in his football game broadcast. These uh, Bruno Marley gloves or whatever they're called, Bruno something, something gloves. But they were the same gloves, wore them every single week. Uh, And they became a big focus of the trial. And then everybody remembers the famous, the glove doesn't fit. And if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Rest in peace, Johnny Cochran. (laughs) So I've actually heard from uh, Christopher Darden, the prosecutor in that case, Mm -hmm. who introduced that piece of evidence. Mm -hmm. It was Christopher Darden who said, ask OJ to put on the glove. So if you were a trial attorney, you're trying to impress upon the jury uh, that uh, this piece of evidence is going to help convict or whatever. Mm-hmm. You have to know everything that's going to happen. You cannot leave anything to chance. And so he goes to try on the glove, and he may have manipulated his hand in a certain way or say, I don't, hey, it don't fit. I don't know what to tell you. Don't look it, look it, look it. It don't fit. Maybe it shrunk because of uh, I, it was dehumidified or whatever. Who knows? But he got to put on this show as if this can't possibly be my mm-hmm. glove. Never mind the DNA evidence. Never mind that he was pictured on video and all this other stuff wearing the glove. But it can't be my glove because obviously it's too small. And I know how to buy gloves. And I don't buy medium gloves, you know. <laughs> and, well, the case is legendary for that reason. But it's not the only interesting um, aspect of that case. And we're going to do a deep dive into it next week and get to some of the reasons why the criminal court found him not guilty. And you have to remember the climate at the time. I mean, we're coming right off of the heels of the Rodney King verdicts. Mm-hmm. L.A. Wrights in 92. People were pissed. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the black community, the Hispanic community, um, things were rising like they were going to erupt. Mm-hmm. There was the L.A. Riots... And now here you have the juice, and everybody's saying free the juice, and, and people want a revenge. People think they had a lot to play out, uh, had, had a lot to do with it. But um, it was a uh, volatile time in L.A. history, and we're going to discuss. So we'll look forward to that for next week. Uh, but for this week, I've been having a lot of cases recently involving claims of a breach of fiduciary duty. And so these are some of my favorite kinds of cases. Uh, the family code that deals with the uh, breaches of fiduciary duties in 1100 subsection B and A, and in layman's terms, without going deep into the statute, basically, if, if you're married to somebody and you have signed a marriage contract and you're going to be their spouse, you owe to your partner a fiduciary duty. Mm-hmm. And that fiduciary duty is, uh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Pause for a minute. Pause. All right, we're back. We're back. Of course, we were going to have the technical issues when everybody's here in the room. So you owe your partner a fiduciary duty, which is the... Uh, uh, it is a uh, promise that you're going to do right by your partner and not deceive or do anything wrong by them, and it's of the highest order. 
It's a duty of care such that you're not going to uh, transfer or sell or dispose of properties or do anything to diminish the community purposefully or recklessly. Um, And if you do, there's consequences to it. And usually the consequences revolve around um, forfeiture of assets, forfeiture of your share in community assets. Um, It could be cancellation of a purchase of real property. And in the case of... um, Donald Sterling, it involved uh, his mistress. Eliana, what do you know about Donald Sterling? I don't know anything about him. I have just heard, like, bits here and there. Yeah, you and probably he know the the, 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 the the juicy bits, right? Yes, exactly, the ones that pertain to family law. Like, oh, that was interesting, but I haven't yeah. heard much about him. So, But I like this subject a lot. <laughs> Donald Sterling uh, married his wife in 1955. Almost 70 years ago. He's a very old man. He made his money uh, by purchasing uh, low-income residential facilities and built himself an empire. He purchased the NBA team, the uh, San Diego Clippers, in 1981. And then from San Diego, he moved them to Los Angeles, and they became the LA Clippers. Actually, I think they might have been called the Braves at one point. I don't know. But he purchased the team in 1981. Around the same time, Jerry Buss purchased the Lakers. He was a very... I think there's going to be some changes. Ignore the sports part of it. It's (laughs) not important. What's important is that Donald Sterling was this very eccentric man. He was racist, outwardly racist. He was a a complete and total um, douchebag to everybody. He was famous for not paying his players, not paying his coaches, um, not honoring his contracts, um, evicting people um, in unsavory ways, and he he was just a bad guy. Fast forward to 2013, 2014, and he got himself a mistress. And that mistress uh, goes by the name of uh, Stiviano. That was her last name. I forget how old she was. She was like in her 20s, I'm sure. Younger 20s, maybe late 20s. But he was an old, old man. I'm talking about pressing 80 years old. Now he's he's got to be close to like, he's got to be knocking on, on his 90s at this point. But I mean, he was, he was really old. And at that point, there was some discussion that maybe he was kind of losing his marbles a little bit. Maybe age is starting to catch up to him. Uh, perhaps, uh, I don't know, he was losing it, right? But he had this mistress, and of course he did, because uh, he was a billionaire. And he kept her company, and he would buy her things. He would buy her cars. He would buy her properties and houses, all from the community funds. Now, you know, you don't, you, here's my opinion. You don't marry a man like that mm-hmm. not knowing that he's engaged in those activities. There's no way you're going to keep that a secret for 70 years. And it was not a secret. He was doing that kind of stuff from the 60s onwards, probably into the 50s, who knows. But it was not this big secret, and his wife just kind of swept it on on the rug. Why? Because her husband was a billionaire, owner of the Clippers, Mm -hmm. and so it was a trade-off. You do what you want to do, and um, I'm going to ignore it. I'm sure she probably did what she wanted to do too. Who knows? The point was, back in 2014, he got this mistress that he was seeing, secretly recorded him in the privacy of his own home. So there's some, Mm -hmm. 
I have some question, questions about the legitimacy of those recordings, admissibility of. The admissibility doesn't matter because the NBA found out about it. And in these recordings, he was saying these grossly racist things that got out. And the NBA trying to protect its image, it's like, we can't have that. We can't have that. Mm -hmm. And so they essentially forced him to sell the team. Okay. The discussion at the time of his divorce in 2014, when they started initiating these divorce proceedings, was whether or not he committed a breach of fiduciary duty as it relates to his racist comments that caused him to be forced to sell the team. All of these property issues uh, were addressed whereby was the team in a trust? Was it purchased as, as a trust? Did it come from separate property? Was it, you know, community property? You know, what was it? How was the team held? One of the fiduciary issues was whether or not his actions causing them to sell the team mm -hmm. was actionable in his family law case. Mm -hmm. The other issue that came about was um, the gifts that he gave to his mistress. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. The Cars, 2007 property. Bentley, there was a 2012 Mercedes Benz, there was a property, a, a high-rise property in L.A. somewhere. There was all of this. There was, there was a number of things totaling about $2.5 million, all paid out of community funds. And um, he didn't dispute any of it. It's like, mm -hmm. did you give this girl $2.5 million? Yes, I did. And I'll do it again tomorrow, and I'm going to do it again next week. What you going to do about it? You know? He's a billionaire. He he sold the Clippers for something like $3.5 billion. And so it's not like he was put out of anywhere. Um, the Clippers were bought for, at that time, what was a record price. And, you know, they're doing well with their new ownership. But, yeah, he was he was very much a combative old man. Um, there was actually a documentary podcast about it by uh, Ramona Shelburne that she put out uh, for ESPN not too many years ago where she highlighted a lot of the legal proceedings that were going back and forth. And, look, they were a couple that had – they're just a weird old couple, a weird old rich couple. <laughs> they had – they were interesting folks in the courtroom. And Donald Sterling, he didn't dispute any of these things. And so it's not like we had to litigate whether or not he gave these to his mistresses. Yes, I did. And you know what? Oh, yeah, yeah. Hey. <laughs> Yeah, I'm 80 years old, but I got money. Mm -hmm. And there's a dozen more like her, all willing to take this money, <laughs> you know, which, Jesus. But that's his, uh, that, that was his position. So then the new issue became whether or not the mistress would be forced to forfeit mm -hmm. the properties that were given to her or she'd be able to keep them as, I guess, some bona fide purchaser mm -hmm. um, theory of law. The answer, uh, I actually have uh, some of the case. And so some of the factual background on the case, um, and this case was heard right at Stanley Mosque. And this is what the law says about it. In Family Code Section uh, 721, I need my glasses for this. I cannot even attempt. <laughs> it goes on to say uh, that subsection, well, Section 721B imposes a fiduciary duty upon transactions between spouses, and it provides in relevant part that in transactions between themselves, spouses are subject to the general rules governing fiduciary relationships. It goes on to say that the fiduciary obligation is also imposed upon transactions involving a spouse's management and control of community assets. And then it goes on to say consistent with this general fiduciary duty, uh, 
Section 1100, subsection B, prohibits one spouse from making a transfer or gift of community personal property without the written consent of the other. And it states, in pertinent part, a spouse may not make a gift of community personal property or dispose of community personal property for less than the fair and reasonable value without the written consent of the spouse. But then it goes into these, these um, collection measures. Uh, gifts or transfers of community personal and real property by one spouse without the written consent of the other spouse may be set aside. What does the set aside provision mean? It means that if you buy a house for your mistress, the court is well within its authority to uh, quiet title as to the mistress and return the property back to the community. Under sanction principles and, and sanctions sections in family code, that may have the result of the person who breached their fiduciary duty forfeiting their share of the assets. So it's a $10 million house. Um, the mistress loses it all. She doesn't get to keep it. It's not, she's not a bona fide purchaser, not as recognized by the law. Uh, so she forfeits it. It goes back to the community. And if he was entitled to $5 million, he might just, he, he may well just forfeit that entire $5 million. So the, the other party gets the, gets the other. Why were you so interested in this particular subject, Ileana? Because, I mean, I don't see it um, with million-dollar properties nowadays. Um, my clients are more, I guess, have lower incomes. <laughs> but <laughs> I do see uh, breach of fiduciary duty all the time. Mm. Um, people just think that they can do whatever they want. Yeah. And they are surprised whenever I told them that this exists. And, <laughs> I mean, it's funny because they find out at the moment that they're going through a divorce. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but... I mean, a lot of times, I find that these uh, fiduciary duties, a lot of times it's more about making moral decisions and like being logic, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> rather than just knowing the law. Like, of course, you're not going to be buying a property for your mistress. Like, of course, that money yeah. <laughs> yeah. belongs to the, you too. Like, I don't know. But it, yeah, some people think that they can get away f with it. And yeah, I don't know. I liked it a lot for some reason. <clears throat> oh, look at that. I just adjusted your volume and it worked out. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, yeah, it's very much, it's always the same. Like, he used the community credit card to pay for the mm -hmm. hotel rooms and I want that money back. And I'm like, how much does that hotel room, hotel room cost nowadays? Two, three hundred dollars? Yeah. Four hundred bucks. So we're going to litigate this issue for four. I've never actually taken that specific issue to trial. I have threatened it, though, and yeah. people don't want that stuff getting out. Cases usually settle anyway when it involves that kind of stuff. Most of the time, I think, at least in my cases, has been that the money that they are supposed mm -hmm. to get back, it's less than they will need to pay me to litigate. So it's like, yeah. okay, do you want to pay me, I don't know, $5,000 to litigate $1,000? Like, yeah, where yeah. are we going to get it? <laughs> so... No, absolutely. That's that's. I mean, that's how that works. Like, it's oftentimes. I mean, there there's legitimate breach. Like, mm -hmm. for example, if you're running a community business, yeah. and then you put all of the the surplus fund into Bitcoin and watched it drop from fifty eight thousand down to eighteen thousand mm -hmm. or whatever it is, it's arguable whether or not that is mm -hmm. a breach of fiduciary duty. Honestly, in that case, I think that it would be just yeah. bad luck, tough luck investment. Mm -hmm. He was trying. 
his best for the community. I think what, what happens is if you're doing it without knowledge of the other spouse, then it could rise to the level. But then the tribal issues become um, how involved were you in the community finances anyway? And what was and to what level was your participation mm-hmm. um, in uh, these and uh, in, in the finances or the investments mm-hmm. or whatever? So you can't just say he's like, well, yeah, I left him in charge of all the finances and he mm-hmm. lost all their money. So I yep. want I should be reimbursed. And then it's like, well, what did you contribute? Did you I let him do all of that? Did you uh, give him alternate advice? Did you say, like, what's your role in all of this? And so it's not yeah. as simple as just saying my husband made bad decisions mm-hmm. or he spent money on a mistress or whatever. I need that money back. And the Donald Sterling case, it was, it, it was that simple simply because he didn't deny it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I bought her a house. Of course, with community money, we married this lady for 70 years. And it was a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. It was a lot of, yeah. It all came from the Clippers, but mm-hmm. purchased in 81, married in 55. It all adds up. Mm-hmm. So undisputed. I just think that it was interesting that she didn't get to keep any of the property. Mm-hmm. If I had not known about this case, prior to this case, my thought would have been that maybe she could keep the properties, but he is going to have to reimburse mm-hmm. her from his separate property yeah. um, because she's sort of like, a, like it's not her fault. I mean, mm-hmm. she got the gifts. What's she supposed to say? No, I can't. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, it'll leave me liable because you're married. And, you know. yeah. and nobody thinks like that in that situation. But that, that wasn't the case. She was forced to forfeit the mm-hmm. properties altogether in order to pay uh, Donald Sterling's wife, um, I forgot what it was. It was a little less than a million dollars. And I'm certain some of the other money came from other sources. But that was the Donald Sterling case. Um, And with that, we've been going solid for about an hour. Okay. And so I think it's time to wrap up. Uh, Did you have any parting words before we conclude episode 14? No parting words. I mean, no, nothing. Okay. Well, with (laughs) with that regard, to all of our listeners, uh, first of all, thank you for watching the show. If you're interested in watching uh, the show, you can find us on YouTube. We do have a YouTube channel, Mm -hmm. and we upload every Friday. And with it, with a new episode, in this episode, we are recording on a Thursday afternoon. It will be up tomorrow afternoon at some point. And for those of you listening by podcast, thank you for doing that. Um, you can find us on any uh, podcast platform that you listen to, whether it be Spotify or Apple Podcast or um, Castbox or uh, Stitcher or any anything, all of the major platforms. Um, we will see you all again next week. And um, if you have any questions or anything that you wanted to address, as always, as you guys have done uh, this week, by all means, uh, write us directly. Uh, you can find Ileana on Instagram. I'm on Instagram somewhere. somewhere. I'm, I'm not nearly as <laughs> nearly as active. Uh, you could uh, directly uh, message us, and we will be happy to uh, take your hypotheticals and address them on the show. And with that, uh, we love you all, and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening to the entire podcast. We really do appreciate that. And as always, you can find us on YouTube on the Tilted Lawyer Podcast YouTube channel or on your podcast carrier of choice. 
If you feel we've presented anything of value, please leave a five-star rating, like, and subscribe. We always appreciate that kind of thing. And we do look forward to seeing you all again live every Thursday at 3 in the afternoon. We love you all. Take care.